We're sitting on that beautiful little Danish uh, postjacht, which uh, a wooden boat without the engine. And uh, this is my house, my living area. I talked to Andreas Lackner aboard the little sailboat he lives on in a shipyard on the windswept coast of the Netherlands. How big is this boat? Uh, we have uh, one full square meter of, uh, of standing room. <laughs> you got a little heating stove. You got a little range to, to boil water. Andreas fell in love with sailing when he was in his 20s, but not because he liked to race yachts or hang out in fancy marinas. The reason he learned to sail was so he could go across an ocean without leaving any carbon footprint. I wanted to go to South America and not use a plane. That was the only reason. Oh, okay. I didn't sail before much. Really? And so you just learned to sail on the tall yes. ship? On that first wind-powered voyage across the Atlantic, Andreas would sit up in the rigging and look at other ships crossing the ocean. And they were mostly commercial cargo ships, container ships, and tankers. They ran on oil instead of wind, and they emitted lots of carbon and other nasty stuff into our atmosphere. It was up in that rigging that Andreas decided what he'd do with his life. He'd try to help the planet by putting sails on all those cargo ships. It's about uh, changing our lifestyle in a way so we can uh, live for the next 100 million years without uh, much trouble. It's about changing the whole society, the whole view. And this is what we do with our little ships also, to change people's view. Andreas created a company called Fair Transport. He bought and restored a couple of old ships, and he uses them to sail cargo across the Atlantic and around Europe. He fills their holds with dozens of tons of wine and rum and chocolate, sometimes some fancy shoes. He's been doing this for about a decade now running a shipping company with sail power, without using any engines or burning any oil. It's still a boutique business. Most of the clients are small, upscale brands who want to boast that they're shipping their products carbon-free. And at this point, maybe you're thinking, okay, cool, but why should I care about this guy in Holland who's got a cute little business selling chocolate around? And here's where I'm going to tell you why you should care. The world's fleet of commercial cargo ships is mostly out of sight to us over the horizon in the middle of the oceans. But there are tens of thousands of cargo ships out there. They mostly run on an especially sludgy kind of oil. They're terrible for the planet. These days, the global shipping industry's emissions are equivalent to a big industrial country like Germany or Canada. And maybe now you're saying, okay, that sounds bad, but why is it my problem? Seems like a problem for the shipping companies to solve. But the reason it's your problem, and my problem, is that we are why all those cargo ships are chugging across oceans, burning noxious fuel. If you look around you, chances are a huge percentage of everything in your field of vision right now came on an oil-burning ship. They're bringing our stuff to us. What would you say to the consumer who has never thought about this, who is used to getting their clothes, their sneakers, their food, their computers, um, shipped cheaply and quickly, and they don't really think about it, what would you tell them to think about? I would tell them to go out to the beach on a nice sunny day uh, with a light westerly wind on, in Holland, for example, or Belgium, France, and to look out to sea and to look, look very good, precisely, and then you will see a little uh, a yellow line on the horizon which is a sulfur uh, from burning the, the uh, heavy fuel oil. And with the west wind, it comes straight into the mouth. And uh, one liter of heavy fuel oil is 
three and a half thousand times as toxic as normal diesel. So this is what you breathe in because you want your sneakers uh, transported in a very cheap way. Obviously, a couple of little sailing ships on their own won't make a dent in global shipping emissions. But Andreas is trying to show that it can be done. Is part of what you're doing trying to show proof of concept to make this up to business that can support itself economically? For sure. I mean, the concept is about the oldest concept uh, in all uh, known history. I mean, putting uh, things on a, on a floating something with a piece of cloth somewhere or a banana leaf and go somewhere. There's really no need to prove this concept, using wind to move things around. Because what Andreas is doing isn't new at all. It's a throwback to the age of sail. We used to sail everything we needed everywhere around the world for thousands of years. But then, not much more than 100 years ago, we stopped. Sailing was a perfect technology, and we abandoned it. We switched to cargo ships that burnt coal and then oil. And our ships have been burning fossil fuels ever since. Which brings me to my first question. Why did we stop sailing our cargo around using clean, renewable wind and start chugging our cargo around using dirty oil? The answer isn't as simple as you might think. And it brings me to my second question. If it could help save the planet, is there any chance we could go back in technological time and start sailing all our cargo again? From Slate, I'm Seth Stevenson. And from The Economist, I'm Tom Standage. Welcome to The Secret History of the Future. So, Tom, here we are on the banks of the Thames. There are some very picturesque swans over here. And right now, it's, it's all fossil fuel-powered ships and boats that we're, we're seeing for the most part. But if we went back in time 150 years ago, this would have been a forest of masts, right? Yeah, this was sort of the center of you know, British maritime power. Tom and I went to Greenwich in London, which was once a focal point for all things nautical. We've got the buildings of the Royal Naval College behind us here. Uh, We've got the Royal Observatory up there, which sort of defines zero degrees longitude and all the mapping and all that kind of stuff. And then this is where all the ships would come. And you can see over there where we've now got a whole load of skyscrapers. The middle one is Canary Wharf. And all of the wharves over there in Docklands were where all of the goods that were brought from around the world would be unloaded. I wanted to find out why the age of sail came to an end and whether it might ever come back. So I took Tom to visit one of the most impressive sailing ships ever built and one of the last of its kind. If you look to your left, you can just make out, I believe, the bowsprit and some of the spars of Cuddy Sark. Yeah. 150 years old this year, one of the great sailing ships ever created, and I believe it holds a key to the future of shipping. Okay, Tom, let's take a stroll. It's about a 150-meter walk for us, but it's about 150 years back in time. Look at this majestic ship rising uh, above the ground here. It is massive. You just don't see sailing ships that look like this. You know, even the, the big yachts that pull up in New York Harbor, the fancy ones, they're nowhere near this size. So we're standing under the hull at the moment of the Cutty Sark. The Cutty Sark now lives in a dry dock next to the River Thames, and it's been turned into a museum. Tom and I got an after-hours tour from curator Hannah Stockton. The ship was first built in 1869 to take part in the tea trade. 
And it was built to be fast, which was not usual for cargo ships, really, in this period. It's the funny thing is, I suppose, that we think of sailing ships as sort of old-fashioned now, but this was a very, very high-tech sailing ship. Yeah, it was kind of right at the forefront of technology in sailing ships at the time. Steamships had been around for a little while, but these can go faster. Cuddy Sark was one of the famous 19th-century tea clippers that hauled chests full of caffeine from China back to England. The sailing clippers were the fastest ships of their day, with higher top speeds than even the steamships. There's a famous log entry from a crewman on a steamship in the Indian Ocean who actually watches the Cutty Sark catch up with his coal-powered ship and then overtake it and just completely leave it in her wake. And this crewman is like bowled over because this silent ship with its full sails just goes zipping past his loud, smoky steamship. Steamships had been around for several decades when Cutty Sark was built, but sailing ships still dominated the long-distance cargo trade because they were better suited for the long voyage between Europe and Asia. And that was partly because the steamships of that era had a lot more trouble with the weather conditions going around the capes at the southern tips of Africa and South America, where the weather is extremely rough. Sailing ships like the Cutty Sark could actually handle those conditions better than the steamships of the day. If you're going round either cape, you hit some of the worst possible weather, really. You hit the Roaring Forties, and steamships at this time, at least, weren't particularly great at coping with that whereas sailing ships had had years to perfect the craft. Sailing captains on ships like this would be very, very skilled, and actually Cutty Sark, with the amount of sail it has, is very good in strong winds. So steamships had trouble rounding the capes, which was the only way to get to Asia from Europe back then. And the other issue for the steamships was that they ran on coal, and coal costs money. To go a long distance, like around the Cape to Asia, you needed a lot of coal, and that cost a lot of money. Your fuel costs could be more than your cargo was worth. But no matter how far the sailing ships went, they had zero fuel costs because the wind was always free. So that's two big advantages for the sailing ships. But then there came along a radical change in the maritime world that solved both the steamships' problems at once. The Suez Canal actually opened the same week that Cutty Sark was launched, so it's almost kind of a spectre that overlooked her right from the get-go. The Suez Canal was what really killed the Age of Sail. It opened a shortcut for ships from the east, through a corner of Egypt, straight into the Mediterranean. Cuddy Sark had the misfortune of being built in 1869, right as the canal opened, which meant she was doomed from the start. When the canal opened, the steamships could get from Europe to Asia and back, staying in relatively calm seas in the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean, and they didn't need to round the capes anymore. The canal also cut 3,000 miles or so off the route, which meant you didn't need to spend nearly as much on coal to get a steamship to make the journey. So at that point, and it happened pretty quickly, steamships took over from sailing ships as the main way to move cargo around the world. Sailing ships started to disappear as the century turned. When the winds were right, they went really fast. But when the wind wasn't blowing, they were dead in the water. That made their schedules unpredictable. Steamships had steady delivery times since they weren't dependent on the wind. So we stopped using sails and we moved on to coal and oil. But then, in the 1920s, a mysterious invention seemed like it might give wind power one last gasp. There was an inventor in Germany named Anton Flettner, born in 1885. His most famous invention was something that every airplane pilot today will be familiar with. It's what we call a trim tab. It's a little flap on the wing or the rudder of a plane that makes it much easier for the pilot to steer it. But I'm going to talk about another one of Anton Flettner's inventions. 
is from the 1920s, and at first it was shrouded in secrecy. All that people knew was that it was a ship that had some strange new means of propulsion, and it wasn't an engine, and it didn't use any coal or oil. When Fletner's new invention was unveiled, it became a major sensation for a couple of years. Albert Einstein was quoted saying he thought it could be revolutionary. Popular Mechanics put Fletner's ship on its cover in 1925. The New York Times wrote a whole bunch of articles about it. In 1926, the ship took its maiden journey across the Atlantic Ocean to New York. And when it arrived in New York Harbor, it was saluted by cheers. The New York Times described the ship as a strange craft and treated it like it was a huge deal that was going to change the maritime world forever. Now, hang on a minute. It doesn't use any coal or oil. This is just an electric ship, isn't it? No, no, no. It had a mysterious propulsion system, Tom, which was... wind. But Anton Fletner's ship didn't use sails. Or at least it didn't use sails that looked like any sail you would recognize. Fletner's ship had something that looked like a tall, skinny cylinder, almost like a smokestack that stuck straight up vertically out of the ship's deck, high into the air. It was a rotor, and the rotor was motorized. It didn't need much energy, but it did have a little motor to spin it around. So this looks kind of like a rolling pin if you stood a rolling pin up on its end and spun the cylinder and put it on top of a ship. And Fletner claimed that when the wind hit this spinning cylinder, the effect would be to send the ship zooming along through the water. The physics principle that Fletner based this invention on was called the Magnus effect. It was named for the German physicist H.G. Magnus, who studied it in the 1850s. It's an effect you can see whenever you've got an object that's spinning as it moves through the air, like a golf ball hit with a slice or a tennis ball hit with topspin. So it's like one of those David Beckham free kicks where he curves the ball. I don't know how he does it, but he's spinning it or something. Yeah, the ball's spinning, so it's pulled in a certain direction that bends the ball, the same way that these rotors are spinning and they pull the ship in a certain direction. It actually works a lot like a regular sail works. A regular sail on a ship works in two ways. If the wind's behind you, it just kind of pushes the ship, pushes the sail along. I think that's how most people think of it. But when you're going into the wind, the sail works like an airplane wing. It's curved, and that curve shapes the air around it, creates pressure differential, that creates lift, and it actually pulls the sailboat along the same way that an airplane wing lifts the airplane up. And that's actually what's happening with the Fletner rotor. It's making the wind go across it at different speeds, just like the way that the curve of a regular sail is making the wind go across it at different speeds, and that's pulling the ship along. It's creating lift. And Fletner actually powered his ship across the ocean using these rotors. But then after his big maiden crossing in 1926 to New York, Fletner and the ship basically disappeared from media coverage, right up until 1931, which is when the New York Times did a little curiosity feature about the ship because it had sunk off the coast of Central America. It had been in complete obscurity for several years. So what went wrong? They were really keen on this and it was going to like change everything. So why did it disappear? Well, fossil fuels for ships were getting relatively cheap by then. We were moving on to diesel. So there wasn't as much of a cost issue with fuel use, and it just didn't seem worth it for ship owners to install these rotors. So the Fletner rotor was sort of forgotten. But a lot has changed since the 1920s. The conditions might be right for the Fletner rotor to make a comeback because we didn't care about carbon emissions back then, but we do care about them now. Because the oceans we sail on are not controlled by any one country, the United Nations has a special section that deals with global maritime issues. It's called the International Maritime Organization. The IMO building is in London, on the edge of the Thames, a little west of where Cuddy Sark is. The building's lobby is full of all sorts of extremely realistic model ships. 
And upstairs, in its offices, there's a team of bureaucrats trying to wrangle all the different players who make up the world of shipping. We spoke to one of those bureaucrats. My name is Camille Bourgeon. I am a technical officer in the Marine Environment Division. Camille explained just how vast shipping is. The IMO estimates that 80% of goods that get transported in some way are getting transported on ships. And he said that results in a big impact on the environment. International shipping accounts for approximately 2.5 to 3% of the overall um, greenhouse gas emissions. And the last study that we undertook in uh, 2015 showed that those emissions could uh, rise from 50 to 250 percent by 2050, which is quite significant. So if they're left unchecked, shipping emissions will become a huge problem. And the IMO is acutely aware of that. Next year, a new limit on sulfur emissions will take effect. And there are also talks about setting an ocean speed limit, so ships will burn less oil and release less carbon. And in one of the biggest things to happen in shipping in decades, the IMO has created a new regulatory goal to cut greenhouse emissions from shipping in half by the year 2050. It's really been identified by, by some of the major actors as the, the Paris Agreement for shipping. And so how soon do we need to start building ships with lower carbon emissions in order to have the fleet in 2050 achieve that goal? You're really pointing here one of the big uh, specificities of shipping is that the assets uh, have a long lifespan. And basically, a ship is, is lifetime is around 30 years today. So whatever we do, if we're going to meet these targets by 2050, we need to start soon. Because ships can easily have a 30-year lifespan, and sometimes longer. So some of the ships that will be around in 2050 are being built right now. And right now, the vast majority of ships run on heavy fuel oil, which is basically the sludge that you get at the bottom of the barrel. And it burns very, very dirty. It produces a massive amount of particulates. So the shipping companies are going to need to find new ways to propel their ships if they're going to get on board with this IMO plan to cut emissions. This is going to take lots of R&D, lots of investment, and it won't be easy because the shipping industry is a complicated web of relationships. The cargo owners and the ship owners and the port owners all have different interests. There are lots of different countries involved, lots of different kinds of ships. What works for a bulk carrier lugging iron ore a short distance might not work for a container ship moving between continents. There are some ideas out there about how we could power our ships in a carbon-neutral way, but a lot of the possible solutions are still in early stages. Here's Camille Bourgeon again. If you talk about electric batteries, for example you realize that the, the power required on board the ship to propel it is, is so huge, so immense. It cannot work today, I mean, with the existing technology on deep seas with, uh, with simple car batteries. Uh, you need something else. You probably need uh, synthetic liquid fuels. The, uh, people are talking about hydrogen, uh, ammonia as a, as a hydrogen carrier. Ideas like using liquid hydrogen or liquid natural gas are still being developed and tested. But Camille did mention one potential solution that was invented and perfected long ago. As you noticed, shipping has been using wind as a main uh, propulsion for centuries. And wind propulsion will, and wind assistance will probably have a role to play in the future too. So maybe we really could have a new golden age of sail, or at least a golden age of wind assistance. There are designs out there for kites that you can deploy from the bow of a ship to pull it along. Or there are some designs that use actual sails. There was a cargo ship in Japan in the 80s that had a sail system. And there's this very promising system called the Dynarig that's kind of a modern version of a square-rigged ship like the Cuttysark. But it's one where the sails are automated so they can raise and lower themselves at the press of a button. 
And then there's Anton Fletner's rotor from 1926. It disappeared for a while, but it's making a comeback right now. Tom, what have we learned on this show? What's old is new again. Woohoo! <laughs> There's nothing we like more than when an old technology comes back to life again. Hooray. It, it's kind of no-brainer. In the old times, the ships were only propelled by the wind. Now we don't use the wind almost at all to propel a ship. This is Tuomas Risky. He's the CEO of a Finnish company called Norse Power that's starting to install Fletner rotors on big modern ships. So it was a no-brainer that technology can work and it can have a big contribution on the emissions of shipping. Last year, Tuomas put rotors on a tanker owned by Maersk, the biggest shipping company in the world, which has vowed to reduce its carbon emissions to zero by 2050. He's also installed rotors on a Viking Lines cruise ship. I talked to Tuomas by phone at his office in Helsinki. How similar are your rotors to the rotors that Fletner was using in the 1920s? What's the same and what's different about them? Well, of course, the principle is the same. It's just a rotating cylinder. But in Fletner's time, uh, he used uh, metals like aluminum or zinc to make that rotating part. And he had some issues in in balancing them, uh, and they were actually quite heavy. Now we use modern composite materials to make these rotating parts. Uh, We can produce them so that they are extremely well balanced and the manufacturing cost is much lower than in in, in the previous times. Another difference is that when Anton Fletner sailed his prototype ship, he had to monitor the wind conditions himself and he needed to adjust the RPM and the directional rotation of his rotor sails manually. Now we have built a modern automation system which is monitoring the wind condition through modern wind sensors and which is automatically defining if it makes sense to rotate the rotor sails and how fast they should be rotated and to which direction. So from uh, manually controlled Fletner rotors, our technology has taken this to kind of push-button automatic wind propulsion. You can look at pictures of the Maersk tanker with two of Tuomas's tall, skinny cylinders sticking up out of the deck. They're about 100 feet high. And it looks almost exactly like Anton Fletner's rotor ship from 1926. So this modern tanker, it also has a conventional engine with a propeller. But when it's windy, the rotors can take on a lot of the ship's propulsion, which means the engine works much less hard, you save a lot of fuel costs, and you eliminate a lot of carbon emissions. Now, it might seem surprising that you could just pluck an idea out of the 1920s and have it work in the 2020s, but sometimes an idea is ahead of its time. Well, this definitely wouldn't be the first time that a technology is invented and then just sort of sits on the shelf for a bit. And then someone goes, hey, that would be quite useful. I mean, if you think about fuel cells, for example, they were invented in 1839. And recently people have said, actually, this is a really awesome thing that we could put in, you know, hydrogen powered cars or or satellites to to fuel them. And then electric cars, again, a pretty old idea. I mean, they've been around since the 19th century. And then they kind of got pushed aside by petrol engine cars. But of course, in recent years, everyone's much more interested in them. And what was quite a popular technology 100 years ago, goes, come back again. So this does happen. And sometimes technologies just have to kind of wait for the time to be ripe for people to be interested in them again. So the world is changing. And in our case, the fuels are becoming more extensive. And we can also see value in reduction of the emissions. So these kind of changes in the world economy and in the market can enable technologies which are known to work 
but which hasn't had any business case so far to come to the market in the modern world. So I think there are plenty of these kind of innovations, and this is just one example of, of them. So in my opinion, it's very cool that the Fletner rotor is back, but there are a couple of limiting things about using them on modern ships. The first one is the height of these rotors is a problem if you're going under bridges and they can kind of get in the way of loading and unloading cargo. They're very prominent fixtures on the decks and they can get in the way of the cranes. Some people are are actually working on a solution to this. There's an idea that you could have the rotors telescope down and disappear when you're going under a bridge or when you need to load cargo. But the other problem with them is that they are just like old-style sails in the sense that if the wind is just right, you can go really fast with them. I mean, like America's Cup fast. You could send the ship across the ocean using only these rotor sails without burning any fuel at all if the wind is right. But the wind is only right part of the time. Tuomas thinks that if you wanted to maintain the same average transit time for a cargo ship that it would have if it was just using a regular engine, then you could only rely on the rotor sails for about 20% of your propulsion. So that's limiting your fuel costs and emissions by 20%. If you use the rotor sails more than that and use the engine any less than that, then you probably start to slow down and have slower delivery times for your cargo. But let's say you weren't in a hurry. We could even make fully sail-powered ships with our technology and, and make the cargo transport entirely carbon neutral but then you should decrease the service speed of the ship. So you could go 100% wind-powered on a modern ship with a large cargo capacity, but you'd need to slow the ship's schedule down. So, Tom, this is where I'm going to put the responsibility on consumers like you and me. How fast do you need your sneakers to arrive? Let's say instead of taking 10 days to cross the ocean while burning lots of fuel and creating lots of emissions, which is what we do right now, instead we took maybe 25 days to cross the ocean, but we did it with wind. Beautiful, emissions-free, endlessly renewable, romantic wind. Do you think if it meant saving the planet, Tom, that you could live with getting your sneakers a couple of weeks later? Yeah, I probably wouldn't mind with sneakers. I mean, I'm not exactly a dedicated follower of fashion, so I'm not really that fussed about how old my sneakers are. But I can see that there are going to be other products uh, where it is a bit more time critical that you get things in a hurry. So I'm still not entirely convinced that you'll be able to sort of slow down the metabolism of the world trade system without there being some quite serious knock-on effects. Yeah, if you want to naysay about the return of sale, there are all sorts of legitimate issues you can raise. But I think Almost all of these issues really boil down to the problem you're talking about, Tom. World trade, as it's done now, relies on relatively fast ship transits and predictable delivery times. And I confess it would be very difficult to maintain the same level of speed and predictability using wind-powered ships. But if we want to look at a viable business case for delivering things by sail, even if it might be slower, we can actually look back in history to our old friend Cuddy Sark. Because Cuddy Sark carved out a niche for herself even after the steamships totally took over the tea trade. She hung around for a while as a working ship for many years. And the secret to her success was that she moved on to the wool trade out of Australia. And that's because wool was a much less expensive product than tea. So you didn't want to spend all your money on the coal that it would take to send a ship full of wool across the ocean when you wouldn't be able to sell the wool for enough money to justify the cost of the coal. So you'd cut costs by using free wind power. And because there wasn't this race to get wool to places as quickly as possible, like there was with tea, people didn't mind the slower delivery time that you would have when you were using the wind. Even in my wildest dreams about a new golden age of sail, 
I admit that maybe not everything will be shipped using wind. Maybe some things will be liquid hydrogen, liquid natural gas, maybe even in the future, solar power. But I do think we could find some products where we could forgive a slower delivery time and we could find some routes where the prevailing winds are favorable and our weather prediction technology is better now. And I think we could build a 21st century clipper ship if we wanted to. Cuddy Sark was built 150 years ago, and we have better materials now, better technology, better design ideas. What we need is the will to do this, and that's going to require more awareness of the problem. Remember Andreas Lackner, who we met at the start of this episode, operating his little sailing cargo ships in the Netherlands? When I asked Andreas how he plans to convince people who've gotten used to their stuff arriving quickly and cheaply to maybe wait a little longer, and maybe pay a little more, he flipped the question around. We have to uh, name it uh, the real way, name it the other way around. Uh, the other ones are faster by, uh, by damaging the environment really heavily. And the other ones are also cheaper by uh, using and misusing cheap labor and uh, cheap oil. This is how it's possible. We don't do that. So our costs are uh, basic costs, normal. <laughs> you, you're the baseline. Yes, we are the baseline. And they are the unrealistic fantasy cost. Exactly, exactly. I'm Seth Stevenson. And I'm Tom Standage. The Secret History of the Future is a joint production of Slate and The Economist. It's produced by Bart Warshaw and Kate Holland. The senior producer for Slate Podcasts is TJ Raphael. The senior managing producer for Slate Podcasts is June Thomas. The executive producers are Gabriel Roth, the editorial director for Slate Podcasts, and Anne McElvoy, head of audio at The Economist. And thanks to Merritt Jacob, technical director at Slate. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And leave us a review so you can help others find the show too. Thanks for listening. <laughs>